We're starting a new sermon series in the book of Romans. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans if you have one. There are Bibles in the back on the shelf if you would like to use one. But as you turn there, I'd like us to think for a couple of minutes about the way that we approach reading and studying the Bible. Have you ever noticed that you generally find what you're looking for when you read something or when you approach something? So I want to give you a few illustrations of this. Um, How many of you on Friday night have talked to your spouse or family or something and said, man, I really feel like watching a comedy tonight. Well, if, if you feel that way and then you pull up a comedy to watch, you're going to be more likely to laugh. You've oriented yourself to receive the movie in a particular way. Um, Or if you're reading one of your favorite poems, and that poem has an emotional experience connected to it for you. Whenever you pull out that poem, you're going to automatically be inclined to feel what you're looking to get out of the poem or with whatever song um, you might listen to. The way that we frame questions, too, often determines the answer that you're going to get. So we can frame questions in a certain way so that we can only get a particular answer. Uh, This was illustrated really clearly for me a few months ago. I decided to observe a trial in open court, and whenever a witness was up on the stand, the lawyers would ask particular questions so they could get that witness to say exactly what they wanted it to say. wanted that person to say. And sometimes it got really frustrating for that witness when the opposing lawyer was questioning them because the lawyer would frame the question in a way that they would indict themselves. And and so the, the person I was watching on the stand would get really nervous and fidgety and frustrated. And then the lawyer at one point yelled, it's a yes or no question. The way the question was framed would force a particular answer. Well, I think that when we come to the Bible, if we already know what we want the Bible to say to us, we sometimes treat the Bible like the witness on the court stand and we'll only ask certain questions of the Bible in order to get the answer that we want out of the Bible. Um, So we already know what we want from, from it. So we approach it in a way that will give us exactly what we already want. Now, on one level, I want to tell you that's okay to do. Because if you're reading the Bible a lot and and you know that the Bible speaks to certain issues in certain sections, well, you should go to that section and hope to find something there. So we all probably have favorite verses, verses for when we're really discouraged that we go to, or verses that kind of light a fire under us to get us um, walking in obedience to the Lord, whatever the case might be. On one level, that's okay to do. It's good to do even. But I'd suggest that if we're going to spend a long amount of time studying Romans as a church, we've got to think about what we're doing when we approach it. And we shouldn't come to it demanding that Romans do precisely for us what we already want it to do. So how well do you know Romans and what do you expect out of this Romans series? That's something I want you to think about a little bit. Um, If you have been part of a church for a long time, you probably have a general idea of what's in Romans, so you might have more expectations than some other people. But I think for most of us, you might know Romans the way that I know the pop songs that play over the speakers at a restaurant. 
I have some of the more popular phrases memorized, um, but they're like in between is filled with a lot of something, 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 some garbled words. I don't know what they're saying, but then I could sing along for a few bars again before there are more somethings. Well, I think that's the way that most of us know Romans. We've memorized a few key verses out of Romans. We know some portions really well, but there's a whole lot of something, something, something garbled that's gluing it all together. So for some of us, that's like the whole section of Romans 9 through 11. We are, that's a garbled mess. Or for some of us, we've memorized certain verses that you might use to share the gospel, but in between those, we don't really know what Romans is saying. So for a lot of us, I think that we should approach Romans being ready to see it as a whole instead of just getting excited about the few lyrics that we know. We want to come to know the whole song, so to speak. For others of us, we've grown up in church or maybe have even read a lot of theological writings about Romans, and there are some popular approaches to Romans or popular topics that we might be expecting to hear. So, you, you know, if someone asks you, what is the book of Romans good for? Some people might say, Romans is good for entering into a debate about Protestant versus Roman Catholic views on justification. So then when you turn to Romans, all that you can see in Romans is the doctrine of justification. For others, you would say that Romans is really good for a debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. So when you open Romans, all that you can see are the sections on the sovereignty of God or the lack thereof, depending on what position you're coming from. Or perhaps you would say Romans is good for the debate between dispensational and covenantal approaches to the Bible. Now, some of you don't even know what that is, and that's okay. But for others of you, you would say Romans is primarily telling us about how God has decided to work redemption, particularly through Israel. Others, perhaps, would say the only thing that I know about Romans is that it's a spiritually encouraging book. So you go to texts like Romans 8, 28, that say something like, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Or you read it in Romans 8, 1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or perhaps you would say the main thing that Romans is good for is to share the gospel. It's good to declare the gospel to other people. Um, so maybe you've memorized the Romans road. Um, so you'll memorize some verses and lead people along this road of verses to Jesus. Well, I want to say that probably there is some validity to each one of these approaches to Romans and we're certainly going to touch on some of these issues along the way in our series. But these, I would say, are more implications of what's in Romans and not the actual message of Romans itself. And if we pause to think about it for a moment, that becomes really clear. Um, Paul makes really clear that he's writing to the Christians who are in Rome. So Paul clearly does not intend this letter to be an evangelistic tract, leading to someone's conversion. That's not his main emphasis. Um, Paul will talk about things that have to do with spiritual encouragement, but he talks a lot about other things as well. He talks about the plan of redemption, 
but he's not primarily concerned with providing an arrangement between whether you come to faith because you decided to believe in God or if you were chosen to believe in God. These issues might be addressed, but they're certainly not Paul's main concern. So I want to propose that in our study of the book of Romans, while we might attend to certain of these features, none of these should be our driving point. These things shouldn't be what we're looking for primarily as we approach Paul's letter to the Romans. Instead, I think we need to adopt an approach that says we want to be concerned with what Paul was trying to do with Romans and with trying to understand how his first readers would have heard Romans. So we want to care about what Paul is doing with this letter And we want to try to understand how this letter was received by its first readers. We are not the first readers. We are not in the same situation. So this is going to take some work for us. So in this sermon, I want to focus on what Paul is doing in the book of Romans. And next week, I want to focus on what the original readers were doing with the book of Romans. Or better, what was going on in their church that gave gave rise to Paul writing it to begin with. Um, Paul was not writing a systematic theology or something like that that he was submitting to a publishing company. Instead, he was writing a letter to a church because they had particular needs. There was an occasion that gave rise to the writing of the letter. Um, So let's begin by focusing on um, Paul, what's going on with Paul. Now, as, as you hear this, I hope for those of you who are in our Bible class, you're picking up on the three main pieces, main uh, areas of investigation we need for biblical interpretation. So I've, I'll just stick this up here for people who aren't in the class. Whenever you're reading and studying the Bible, you want to attend to three factors for interpretation. First, you want to pay attention to the historical cultural background. This is what I've just been describing. Um, You want to pay attention to what was going on back then so that we can better hear the letter now. Um, This letter was written almost 2,000 years ago in a different language on a different continent. So there are a lot of differences between life as we experience it and life as they experience it. There were historical events that surrounded this letter's writing. So we want to attend to historical, cultural background. Second, we want to pay attention to the literary features, what's actually in the text, what words are being used, what's being done with these words. So we'll pay attention to those things throughout. And then we also want to attend to the theological message of the text. What theological message is Paul trying to communicate to his readers? This is what we're going to do throughout this Roman series. And this, I would suggest, is what you should do whenever you're reading the Bible attend to these three factors for interpretation. But let's get into Paul, the writer of Romans. Um, No one really doubts that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. Um, There are some letters in the New Testament where some critical scholars might doubt that Paul actually wrote them. That's not the case with this letter. And Paul identifies himself from the very beginning. So in Romans 1.1, he just identifies himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. He is the author. He is the main one writing this letter, communicating to the church in Rome. Well, if we're caring about historical background information, we'll probably want to think about who Paul is, what's going on in his life, what's his life all about. Well, we get 
a lot of that in Acts chapter 9 through 28. So if you want to know more about the Apostle Paul, um, just listen to or read Acts 9 through 28, and you'll hear about his remarkable conversion. You'll hear about some of the very treacherous trips that he took. You'll hear about the message that he preached. But if you want to go beyond that, and I know some of you are readers, there are a few books that have been written on Paul and his life that you might find particularly interesting. One is by Michael Byrd. It's called Paul the Man, um, His Message and His Message. This is really readable, easy to read. And in fact, um, someone borrowed this in 2020 from me and has not returned it. So if that's you, um, bring it back so someone else can borrow it. Uh, There's another book, a biography of Paul by N.T. Wright, fittingly called Paul, a biography. And this one's also an audio book. It's a really great listen. And not just because the narrator has like a deep, beautiful sounding voice as he's reading. Um, This is a really engaging, interesting biography. And then a guy named Tom Schreiner wrote one that's part biography, but mostly a theology of Paul called Paul, Apostle of God's Glory in Christ. Um, So if you're interested in pursuing this further, you you should pick up one of these books, and I'd be happy to lend you a copy. But for most of us, we could just read Acts 9 through 28. If you're familiar with Paul's life at all, you'll recall that Paul had a dramatic conversion experience, um, and following that conversion experience, God raised him up to be an apostle to the nations. He would take the message about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, and declare that message across the known world. That was his whole purpose in life. That's how Paul presents himself to us in this letter as well. So, for example, in 1.5, Romans 1.5, he says that through uh, God and through Jesus Christ, he received the grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of his name among all the Gentiles or among all the nations. And in fact, this is the same way that he closes the letter in Romans 16, verse 26. He talks about this commission he has from God to share the gospel with the Gentiles, with all the nations. Now, for most of us, that just seems kind of blah or boring. Why would it be so important that a Jewish apostle was sent to share the gospel to all the nations. Well, if you start reading the book of Acts, you'll realize that this was really scandalous. It was really unheard of for someone like Paul to go and share the message of the Jewish Messiah with non-Jews. So we need to park on this for just a second. Um, The distinction between Jew and Gentile is not in our experiential world. But in Paul's day, especially for Jews, they divided the world into two kinds of people, Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Uh, There are maybe some groups in between, but they're really small and they're not the main thing. Probably um, the closest experience that we would have to dividing the world up in this way is if you pick up a newspaper or something, and the world is often divided into white and non-white people. Maybe import some of the feeling connected to those discussions into the way that people in the ancient world would have felt about a division between Jewish and non-Jewish people. 
there, there are no parallels to be drawn between our experience of dividing the world that way and theirs. But the main point is that for a Jewish person in Israel, there are Jews and non-Jews. And for Jews, there's a whole way of life. Now, there are distinctions within it. There are different groups within Judaism. But generally, there's an underlying sense that Jewish people share an identity that's political and theological and ethnic, and none of these things can be divided. You can't separate religion and politics and tradition or anything else. They're all wrapped up together in a way that's hard for us to understand. And really, every nation had their own fusion of religion and politics and traditions that couldn't be unraveled. So you can see why for Jews in Israel, if if they believed that they had guidance from the true God of the universe, that their way of life would always be set against everyone else's way of life. It's an us versus them mentality. And God is on our side. Now, if you read Israel's scriptures carefully, you'll realize that God never intended for them to think that way. He intended for them to think, we are God's people for the nations, to take God to them and to allow them to encounter God when they're among us. That's what this division was supposed to engender and create. But in the final analysis, it really just resulted in division and a separation of we're better than because we have God on our side. So for Paul to break through that division and take the Jewish Messiah's message of hope and offer of belonging to his kingdom to other nations was just unheard of. And it was really resisted. People didn't like this. They didn't like it so much so that when Paul would proclaimed this message, there would be riots that happened. Um, In fact, one time he came back to visit Jerusalem and to visit the temple again, and people warned him. They said, Paul, people just saw you with Gentiles, and if you go into that temple, you're going to cause a problem. So out of courtesy, Paul, like, went through this ritual, he shaved his head, and he only brought Jewish people with him just to try to you know, mind his P's and Q's, and there was still an uproar and a riot, and he had to be taken into protective custody. This is the kind of tension that was surrounding the Jew-Gentile division, right? So you've, you've got to have that in your mind. It didn't make sense to most Jews for Paul to, to declare the message of the Jewish Messiah to all the nations. He was Israel's Messiah, not the Gentiles' Messiah. That that was the standard thinking. But Paul, after his radical conversion, spearheads a mission to non-Jewish people to tell them that Jesus isn't just for us, he's also for you. And that radically, God is establishing his kingdom, not just in Israel, but across the entire globe. That because Jesus, who died on the cross, and who was buried, and who was raised from the dead, and has ascended to the Father. He, he is now ruling over all nations. So we might say that someone like Nero is the ruler of Rome, but really, Jesus is the ruler of Rome. We might say that 
Herod or, or Pilate or any other person could be a ruler over Israel, but Jesus is the true king of Israel. He's the king of the world. In the ascension, God made Jesus the king of the world. And when you can't divide religion and politics, that king deserves worship. That's the message that Paul is proclaiming everywhere. So it's in the midst of his journeys that Paul writes this letter. So Paul is going to all these non-Jewish places to preach the gospel. And at this point, if you look, the map's a little hard to see, but if you look way up at the top, that's Rome. So if you know your geography, you can kind of see in your mind, Italy is there. And that top star is where Rome is. If you go a little bit further down, the middle star, that's where Corinth is. So if you think of the the letters in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, those were letters that Paul wrote to that place. And then way to the bottom is Jerusalem. That's where the very center of Jewish um, life and practice really was. That's where Paul went out from. Well, when Paul is writing this letter in the mid-50s AD, it's probably during the winter, and he is probably living in Corinth, that middle location for some time. And he's planning to travel down to Jerusalem, going the opposite direction of Rome. But because he's not going to visit Rome, he wants to write them a letter. So we have Paul in Corinth, heading to Jerusalem, writing a letter to Rome. One of the reasons that Paul needs to write this letter to Rome is because this church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and all of the friction that would come with the division I just described is going on in that church. Now, you have to imagine, though, if that kind of friction goes on in Jerusalem, who's the dominant group? It's going to be the Jewish side of that division. Up in Rome, who's going to be the dominant group? What's going to be the Gentile side of that division? So Paul is going to address that issue, and that's what we're going to focus on next week. But outside of that issue, we should ask the question, why did Paul write Romans? From his perspective, why did this letter need to be written? Even if these divisions weren't going on, why would Paul need to have written this letter to the Roman church? I want to suggest four key reasons. Number one, Paul wanted to explain why he had not yet visited the church at Rome. Okay, so imagine if Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. You're in Rome, the capital of the known world. Why has Paul not come to visit you yet? Uh, Paul has to explain why he didn't go up to visit this church yet. Um, You'll see this in the verses listed there in Romans 1, 10 and 11 and 13, in Romans 15, 22. It's almost like Paul has to defend himself for not going to make this trip yet. Now, I think that probably different people at this church wanted him to visit for different reasons. So if you read in Romans 16, 3, there's this couple that's referenced, Priscilla and Aquila. Well, this couple is in Rome now. But for a while, they lived in Corinth, and in fact, Paul lived with them, and they made tents together. Now they're back in Rome, and they probably want to reconnect with Paul. They learned from him. They probably wanted to interact with him again. So there were probably some friendly people who just wanted to see him again. 
There are others who wanted Paul to visit because he's the famous apostle to the nations, and they probably feel a little bit slighted that Paul hasn't come to see them yet. You know, they're, they're in the capital. They're important people. They want the important apostle to visit them. But then others, I think, who are in the midst of this Jew-Gentile controversy are wanting Paul to show up because they're probably going to think that Paul will land on their side, which means they'll win out in whatever debate is going on here. So let's get Paul in here because he, we know he'll take our side. Whatever the case might be, Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church because he wanted them to visit, but he had always been divinely and circumstantially prevented from coming to them. So instead of being able to be there physically, he wanted to extend his presence to them through the letter. Now, if you keep reading Romans, you'll realize that eventually Paul did make it up to Rome. And he was there for a couple of years. And he was teaching every day anyone who would come and visit him. And they had to come to visit him because he was under house arrest. He was imprisoned. And according to church tradition, it was at that visit in Rome that he was eventually executed. So ultimately, when we kind of look at God's hand in preventing Paul from going to Rome, uh, this probably was in order to preserve Paul's life, to let him keep declaring the gospel until the very end. So first, Paul wrote this letter to explain to them why he had not visited, uh, to communicate some of his presence to them despite his absence. I think this is encouraging for me because like a lot of the people in, at that church in Rome, I've never had the opportunity to meet Paul. I've never gotten to be around Paul. But I get to be around Paul a little bit by soaking in this letter, by learning what he cares about and what he loves and what he's all about. I think, I think we get a little bit of Paul with us by reading this letter in the same way that Rome got a little bit of Paul with them by reading the letter. Second, Paul wrote the letter to explain what he wanted to accomplish when he came to visit them. He wanted to strengthen them and encourage them and share in the gospel with them. So in Romans 1, 11, and 12, he tells them, I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And then he goes on to say in, in the following verses that he wanted to come to declare the gospel to them just as he had everywhere else. Paul's aim in being with them was to strengthen them and encourage them and share the gospel with them. He couldn't do it in person, so he's going to do it in this letter. I think as you read this letter, you're going to pick up on that. You're going to pick up on the way that Paul works to spiritually encourage other people. In, in the way that he tries to strengthen them with what he's doing, with his interactions with them. You'll hear his presentation of the gospel. Now, as we reflect on that, we should probably all realize that none of us are Paul, and none of us probably have churches clamoring for us to come and visit them. So by way of direct application for what Paul is doing, we probably shouldn't start drafting ridiculously long letters and sending them out to churches that we've never visited um, trying to do these things. But I do think that Paul's example gives us a way of relating to this assembly, to interacting with one another. Imagine what it would look like if every Christian consciously adopted Paul's agenda 
here for their own agenda when they interact with other Christians? What if every Christian said, every time I engage with another Christian, in the back of my mind, I want to strengthen them, I want to encourage them in the faith, and I want to celebrate the gospel together. Imagine what it would look like at our church if every time we gathered together on your drive over, you prayed to God and asked him to put you in a conversation where you could strengthen someone spiritually, where you could encourage someone and be encouraged as you talk about your life as a Christian, and and that you would have the opportunity to communicate the way that the gospel not only gives you salvation, but shapes the rest of your life. I think if every one of us did that, as we show up to any gathering, we would be stronger Christians, we would be a healthier church, and we would be more deeply connected to God's mission in this world than we presently are. Now, this isn't a command that we must do this. But in the same way that we read biographies of people and we see something very exemplary that we do and we try to figure out how we can do something similar, we should be doing the same thing here, especially because in other places Paul tells us, imitate me as I imitate Christ. These are some really good things that we could imitate. Now, I do want to recognize, because some of you might have heard what I just said, and you're thinking, okay, so anytime I get together with somebody, I must explicitly talk about the Bible, or um, we must talk about our faith, or we must talk about the gospel with one another. That's not what I'm saying. Um, There are times when we get together just to um, have fun, to watch a movie, or to play ping pong, or whatever you might be interested in. Sometimes we just get together, and that's really, really good. That's part of living as humans together. What I'm trying to say is that we should adopt an overarching framework for our interactions that shapes how we do all of those things. I'm not advocating that we have really stilted spiritual conversations every time we open our mouths. What I'm advocating for is that our entire way of being is shaped by a concern for others, especially as it relates to their spiritual good in the way that the gospel shapes our lives. So one good task for all of us would, to, would be to reimagine what our interactions would look like if they're shaped in that way. So let me give you a, a brief hypothetical example. Um, Joshua and I, um, after we eat lunch, sometimes feel a little bit sluggish. So we say, hey, do you have time for some pong? And by that we mean, do we have like 15 minutes to go play ping pong for a while while we get the blood flowing again and kind of do our stand-up meeting on what needs to happen? Now, there's a way of playing ping pong with Josh that is not shaped by the agenda that Paul presents for us here. There's a way of playing... Um, that a competitive guy like myself can have where there could be outbursts of frustration or um, like an agenda of trying to make me be better than Josh in, um, you know, to just show how good I am at ping pong. Now, everyone should know that's laughable because Josh is like infinitesimally better at ping pong than me and he condescends to my level, which is kind of him. But there's a way of going about this that's driven by self-interest and lack of concern, but there's also a way of going about this that turns ping pong not just into a competition, but also an opportunity to grow in friendship, 
to consider what the struggles are going on in each other's lives, to pursue gospel ministry together. I, I would tell you that probably some of the most meaningful conversations Josh and I have had in the last year have been at the ping pong table. And that sounds really weird. But if you frame your interactions with a desire to strengthen other people spiritually, with a desire to be mutually encouraged in the faith, and to consider how the gospel shapes every aspect of your life, I think that will happen whether you're watching a rom-com or whether you're studying the Bible together. Third, I think Paul wrote Romans to clarify his teaching. He wrote Romans to clarify his teaching about the gospel in the Christian life. Um, this is necessary because Paul is a complicated guy, and he communicates some really challenging things. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is when Peter says, Paul has written some hard things. It's hard to understand what Paul is saying, so he needed to clarify his message just for that reason. But also there were people who were intentionally distorting Paul's message to make him look like a bad guy. They were trying to stir up division and strife, especially among Jewish Christians. Um, so they were trying to say, Paul is teaching that not only do you not have to obey certain things in the Torah, you should actively pursue sin. That's a distortion of Paul's message. So I was trying to think of an analogy for what this would be like back then, and I couldn't come up with anything until this morning on my drive over. Um, on my drive down 42, there was a church sign that had a message flashing that said, Jesus can make our mess into a message. Now, if we're hearing them rightly, they're trying to say, look, there are a lot of messed up situations in our lives, but God can turn that mess into a message of his grace. It can, be, it can be turned into a really beautiful thing. Now, imagine if, um, I'll be the bad guy in this example, imagine if for the next few Sundays, I was starting to notice that that church is experiencing a ton of growth. That church is really doing well for itself. And, and I vindictively wanted our church to do better for itself than their church was doing. Maybe I would misconstrue their message and say, that church down the street, is preaching that you should pursue sin so that God can turn it into good. You should abuse drugs. You should um, beat your spouse. You, you should um, like cheat on your taxes because eventually God will turn that mess into a beautiful message. And this church is teaching you to actively pursue evil. Well, that would be very vindictive. It would be slanderous. Even if it, you know, post enough on social media, there might be a lot of people coming into the building in reaction to that church. Well, that's what people were doing to Paul. And he points that out in Romans 3, 8. Um, he, he was saying, look, people are, are saying this about what I'm preaching. They're saying that I'm saying, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Well, Paul wants to clarify that kind of thing. He wants to show that his message is a message of salvation by faith in Jesus, but he's also calling people to a particular way of life. That's why at the start and end of his letter, he says that he's preaching a message for the obedience of faith. He's not preaching sin so that grace can abound. Well, Paul wants to clarify that, and I think that's a clarification that some of us need. 
um, some of us have mis- maybe have misunderstood Paul's message to say that to be a Christian is just to pray a prayer and put your faith in Jesus, and now you can just be you. Um, that's it. You're free. Don't worry about anything else. When, it, when actually Paul will show us that he's calling us to live as good kingdom citizens, to do what citizens do, to live with the obedience of faith. So Paul's writing to clarify his message. Finally, Paul is writing to raise ministry support. This is especially clear in Romans 15 um, as he gets to the concluding portion of his letter. He's trying to get this church at Rome to support multiple ministry endeavors. Uh, There are three that I want to draw attention to. He first states his intention to travel from Corinth to Jerusalem and he expresses a special, con- or special concern for the poor who are in Jerusalem. And he wants this Roman church to raise some financial support, some money that he can take to aid the poor in Jerusalem, particularly these poor Christians in Jerusalem. Now, we're not totally sure why there was this, um, there were people who are impoverished in Jerusalem. It it may be that a famine had come through, and so everybody was struggling. But I think it's more likely that Paul just has a genuine concern for poor Christians, and he wants to see them provided for. If you read something like Galatians, when Paul is giving his testimony, he, he recounts a time when he met with James and the other apostles, and this was their main instruction for him, to care for the poor. And then Paul follows it up by saying, and that's exactly what I did. And that's what he's doing here. Paul sees as a vital ministry endeavor, concern for the poor, and he actually expects Christians to raise up money to support other poor Christians. That's something that we should think about. I'll return to that maybe in a moment. Second, Paul expresses his intention to travel through Rome on the way to preach the gospel in Spain. So that's kind of on the way. He expected the Roman church to become something of a pit stop, a base for ministry, so that when he showed up in Rome, he could be taken care of, and then he could be sent out of Rome to preach the gospel in Spain. Now, we don't know if this happened. It probably didn't. He was probably executed before he had the chance to do this. But Paul's entreating them for practical provision and for them to take on the role of a ministry facilitator, not for them to go to Spain, but for them to provide for him to go to Spain and to send him out. And then finally, he wanted them to pray. He he wanted them to pray that he would be rescued from unbelievers, that he would have an acceptable and fruitful ministry. So there are kind of three aspects of this ministry raising support. One, money to send down to Jerusalem. Two, a base for ministry in Rome so that he can go to Spain. And then finally, he wanted them to pray. We'll return to the the application for these things in a moment. But when we look at Romans as a whole, from Paul's perspective, how should we respond to this letter? How should we engage with this letter? First, we should, I, I want to challenge you to read through the whole book of Romans. But I want you to start with Romans 12 through 16 and then go back to Romans 1 through 11 because this is what happens if you're like me. 
uh, you get tired out reading Romans. It is a long letter. It, it is extraordinarily long. And, and there are some really complicated things, especially when you hit 9 through 11. So most of the time what happens is we forget that there's a real life on the ground situation that Paul is addressing. And, and we get too tired out to, to go back and restart Romans to connect the dots. So in preparation for reading Romans from their perspective on this coming Sunday, I would encourage you to read Romans 12 through 16 and then read Romans 1 through 11. So that's my challenge to you. Second, it would be good for us as individuals and as a church to pursue a Pauline-like approach to Christian community. It would be good for us to reflect on Paul's agenda in coming to visit the Roman church, having to do a spiritual strengthening and mutual encouragement and communication of the gospel, and to think about what that should look like for you as an individual and for us as a church. I already talked about this at some length, but I don't want you to forget about it, so I'm restating it here. This would be a good dinnertime conversation with your family. This would be a good conversation in the lobby after church as you're talking with other people. Uh, Ask them, how have you been trying to do this even if you didn't state it in those precise terms? Or, Or what suggestions would you have for approaching our gatherings or our ping pong sessions or our movie nights in a Paul like way? That's a good conversation topic. And in fact, um, this is something that is carried out in our family discussion forum. So I'd encourage you, if you're a member, come back. We're, we're talking about some of these things. Third, we should pray about and consider how we as individuals and as a church should participate in gospel advancing ministry. Paul requested three aspects, financial, active ministry support, and prayer. As individuals, but particularly as a church, we should be thinking about this. Every one of us has some responsibility to participate in gospel-advancing ministry. Not all of us will go to a foreign mission field. Not all of us will be Become vocational ministers. Not all of us will start mercy ministries like a homeless outreach or something like that. But all of us should be concerned about gospel advancing ministry wherever we are. Um, I, I worked at this junior camp for five summers when I was in college. And one of the speakers used this phrase to the kids when he was talking about missions. He said, um, some should go some should stay, all should give, all should pray. Some should go, some should stay, all should give, all should pray. It's a little simple way of thinking about this. We all should participate in some way, though we won't participate in every way. You know what? It's okay that we don't participate in every way. It's not possible for us to participate in every way. So a quick word for some of you who may feel 
particularly guilty that maybe you didn't become a missionary or that you don't have the kind of money to fund missions in the way you would like, or perhaps because you work at a Christian company so you don't have unbelieving coworkers you can share the gospel to. I want, I want to give a word of encouragement to you. Um, God in Christ wisely structured the Christian community and gave us a metaphor for understanding the church called the body of Christ where there are different body parts that carry out different functions. And and throughout the New Testament, the New Testament authors try to tell us you can't be everything. You're not God. You're not Christ. But you're part of the body of Christ. So you should take responsibility wherever you can, but then you should also praise God and pray for others who are doing ministry that you could never do as different body parts. So I was really encouraged this week when Ben forwarded me an email, there are these ladies in Bolivia doing some great gospel work that I'll never be a part of. Well, but that's only partly true. Because I'm part of the body of Christ, I am part of it. And you're part of it. And as a local church, we have some ways to participate in more depth and with closer connection. So if, if we're the hand, a hand, There are feet out there in Bolivia doing things we're not that closely connected to. But there are other ministries that we are more organically and closely connected to, and we have greater responsibility to participate in that than anything else. Now, once again, I want to encourage you to come to our family discussion forum because we're going to hear a lengthy update from the Hennigans. And we as a church want to figure out how we can be a base for ministry for these people how we can financially support them, and how we can pray for them. This is, this is one of those rare opportunities where we can do all three of those things. And it's not just the Hennigans. We want to do this for Deb as well, as she's committed to um, do what Jesus very explicitly told a lot of people to do. Sell what you have and pursue ministry. Well, Deb's doing that, and we want to get behind her. And we want to get into our DNA as a church an active participation in God's ministry so that we can be prayers, we can be givers, and we can be a base for ministry. We want to have a basic orientation towards helping and supporting gospel ministry. This demands something of us. It demands our time and our spiritual commitment to pray. It demands money, but particularly when it comes to being a base for gospel ministry for launching other people out into ministry, it requires of us a certain level of openness and patience as people come into our church who are interested in pursuing gospel ministry and being raised up and us trying to figure out, should they do this? Can we equip them? Should we get behind this? And sometimes we're going to have people come to our church asking for us to raise them up and send them out And we want to tell them we always want to be oriented in that direction, even though we can't guarantee it. So connect with us. Become part of our church's life, and let's see what God would do here. So we'll talk about this in that family discussion forum, but we were approached this week by a Nigerian man in Minneapolis who would like to start a church in Brooklyn Park. And uh, we listened to his plan, and we just told him we don't think we can get behind this um, because of like, you're just not prepared for this. But he contacted us later that week and said, 
you know, I heard you out and I think you're right. I think I need to train and I need to be developed and I need to prepare. Can I visit with your church for a few weeks to see if this would be the place that I should be preparing at? Well, we want to be open to bringing people in and raising them up and supporting them and sending them out as God allows us. And you know what? Sometimes we'll do this and it might feel like a waste of time when it just does not make sense to support a work. But we need to make ourselves vulnerable and open to doing that, even if on occasion we might feel like we get the short end of the stick. Paul certainly did, time and time again. So, as we respond to this letter, let me encourage you to read it, um, to pursue a Pauline-like approach to Christian community, and to pursue and participate in gospel-advancing ministry. If we can do this as a church, and if this is all that we get out of Romans through our whole study, I'm sure it won't be. But even if this is all that happens, if we actually put this into practice, we would be better for it. So let's pray that God would do that in us and in this church. Father, we pray that you would do more than we can ask or think, that you would transform this church through our study in Romans that you would make us people who care about your gospel for all of life, that we would become the kind of community of faith that's always seeking the spiritual good of other people, that find it natural to encourage one another in the faith and to talk about the gospel. And would you allow us as this small church plant to grow in a way that we can actively participate in your mission in this world through financial support, through becoming a base for ministry, and through long, hard-given prayers for those who are doing work that we can't do. Would you work in us? Would you work through us? And in it all, would you cause us to walk by faith as you receive glory for everything we do? In Christ we pray. Amen.